Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest Richard Millington. Richard is the founder of Feverbee, a community consultancy. He's been at the community game for over 11 years, and he started his background uh, in helping in the gaming space around esports in 2002. He works for B2B, B2C, and nonprofit and employee communities. So, uh, Richard, welcome. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, that introduction was kind. Um, yeah, thank you for having me on the uh, podcast. I didn't want to tell the truth. <laughs> Excellent. So could you give 60 seconds on your background? Sure. I'm a community consult- consultant running a consultancy called Feverbee. And what we essentially do is help all sorts of organizations, typically larger companies, SaaS platforms, technology, some, some retail brands, develop the most successful communities that they possibly can. And that usually means getting the psychology right, understanding what motivate members, what do people desire, what do they need, how do they feel appreciated and respected within a community, and then fusing that with the technology as well, how you design the perfect experience for the members of your community. And I find if you can get those two things right, most other things tend to fill into place quite quickly. So historically, I've tried to build communities through LinkedIn groups, but they were essentially followings to a large extent. And I'd like to explore how to avoid that. If you're trying to build a genuine community, how do you avoid becoming somebody who ends up building a following? I think that's quite common. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it depends what your goals are. Having a a following of people that can promote you and advocate for you and your work, that is fantastic. It's really useful. And there's definitely a lot of people I can think of who have that model and have got book deals and contracts and all sorts of amazing things as a result of that. I think if you don't want to follow them, fundamentally, your job is to be a curator of a community. That means when you start the community, it can't be about you. It has to be about the topic. It has to be about what you're passionate about. It has to be from the very early stage of you bringing the first members together and co-creating with them what this community should be. And I think there's a huge, huge difference between building a community for your audience and building a community with your audience. And if you're building a community for your audience, you often select the platforms, the rules, the topics, and the invitation list without ever talking to your members first. If you're building a community with your audience, then it's completely different. It means that your very first step is to reach out to some of the people you would like to be participating in this community and asking them, what would you like to see? What are the rules that we should have in this community? What technology makes sense to you? And not overruling them in the process. This isn't like a rubber stamp thing, like a a community consultation that people have already decided what the end result is. But in genuinely following where that leads you and making sure that your audience knows that they're leading that process. You can provide that community they're creating with support. You can provide that community with promotion. You can provide that community with some resources to get the platform that they need. But they are ultimately leading that process. And I think time and time again, when these communities don't take off the way that we want them to, when they aren't as successful as we want them to be, it's because we're trying to build a community for the audience and not with them. And the approaches are completely different. That's really interesting because uh, I think one of the most important lessons I'm learning as I'm in the fledgling stages of developing a community. So I have a community I'm trying to build called Sales of Force for Good. 
And the objective is to elevate the profession and break away from the last 50 years of becoming very much command and control manipulative. And as a LinkedIn post suggested in 2020, a LinkedIn research study that 67% of buyers consider sales and selling to be morally bankrupt. And that's not what I recognize. It's a reaction to that. And I think one of the key questions going through my mind is how do we make sure that we are for something rather than against something? Because I, I think for a community to thrive and not descend into a drunken Twitter type of uh, environment, we need to have a positive focus. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Sometimes. I think if you look at the field of community or organizing for a long time, if you look at Sowolinsky in the USA, one of the biggest authors um, in that field, you find that being against something is a, is a great way to unite people, often for a positive good. I might be against crime in the local community. You might join a community to prevent that. You might work together with other people to prevent that. So being against something isn't necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't automatically mean the community is going to be a negative place. It can fire people up. It can unite people to create something even better than what exists today. A more interesting approach, I think, um, and maybe what you're getting at here, is where you look to see what is the positive that we can create together. One of the really interesting theories um, in community organizing is what's called ABCD, asset-based community development. And what this technical term basically means is that instead of looking at a situation as a problem to resolve, and that's how you unite, you unite your audience together, you look at the people that are within that community, within that topic, or within that field, and think, what are the assets and resources that we have? What do we have that we can use to work with one another, to support one another? If I go from person to person, what are the problems we like to solve? What are the ways we can contribute that to solve those things? And so when you follow that approach, it can take you in a completely different direction. So instead of tackling you know, crime in the local community, which is a valid topic, you might find that people want to work together to create a new community center or something else. And this works um, online as much as, as it does offline. But when you start looking and mapping out the resources of your members, when you start looking and mapping out the uh, expertise and the um, backgrounds that they have and seeing how they can each contribute that, and you become the facilitator of that, you're building a completely different kind of experience, a completely different kind of community. And that, I think, is a really, really exciting thing to do. So certainly, I think there's a role for a leader to plant a flag and say, hey, this is the direction that I feel we need to go. And sometimes people might, fo might follow you and sometimes they don't. If you're a brand, then I think it's, it's a somewhat risky thing to do, but it can work out. And you can build a community by saying, this is a problem. Let's rally and unite to solve this problem in some particular way. But for me, my favorite approach is to just begin with what are the people that we want to be engaged? Who are the people we want to be engaging in this community? What are the assets and resources and the time and the skill and the talent and all those things that we can use to start creating the community that benefits everyone within that group? And to me, that's such an exciting thing to do. And it's such an indispensable thing, I think, to be doing for but people. That's in really interesting because um, I'm reaching the conclusion, but I don't want to make it cut and dried yet, that I think Gen Z and millennials are the people that we would want to attract for the making sales a force for good because they're the ones who are going to inherit 
this better future. I think my generation, to a large extent, has been the uh, creator of the negative, very transactional, high pressure, high turnover of staff, mental burnout, all of that kind of thing. And I'm not sure corporates can adjust because what we're talking about potentially is going to require very, very brave leadership in publicly listed companies and large corporates. Uh, So that's a really interesting point. Okay, so what, what are the four most common questions you get asked around communities and community building? Yeah, these are relatively common, I think. There'll be questions like, how do we start an online community? Where do I even begin? There'll be questions like, what is the value of a community or can you prove the return on investment of a community? It'll be questions like, um, what technology should I use? What platform? Is it LinkedIn groups? Is it Facebook? Is it Salesforce? Is it some other platform? And maybe also, how do I increase the engagement? How do I get my members participating more often? I think those would be the four most common questions that come up time and time again in my work. Okay, so let's deal with them one by one. I think to some extent, we've already talked about how we start or begin an online community. But is there anything else that you'd like to add to that? Not too much. I think if you're starting a community, for me, the reason why I think, um, and I don't want to brag too much, but the reason why I think that we're so successful with our clients is that we spend an extraordinary amount of time researching the audience first. I've literally been in situations where I'm sitting with prospective members of that audience in um, coffee places in San Francisco, San Diego, and other places, really looking at how they engage with, with a topic. At what point in their day would they rely upon support from a community? And really going in depth to understanding who the audience is, are what they want, and understanding specifically what a community can help them do even better than what they do today. It's very hard to create new habits from scratch. It's a lot easier to transfer habits from something that members are already doing today to something they can do in the community even better. And if you can embed that within a community, that's a huge win. So I think just getting a community off the ground is the level of research I think is worth doing on the audience. If you haven't interviewed 10 members of that audience already, I would do that first before doing anything else because you always learn so, so much. That's really interesting. And is there a framework that you can suggest to go through that process? Yeah, if you go to um, feverbee.com and look at the resources, we've got processes for starting a new community from scratch. Really, I would look at building a following first, um, some sort of audience you have access to. And you can do that by creating content. You can do that by hosting events. You can do that by individually reaching out to other people or participating in existing communities there. And once you have some sort of network that you can engage with, it becomes a lot easier to build a community. It becomes a lot easier to reach out to all of them, understand what they need and start building a community that's going to work with their needs in, in the future. So there's lots of different frameworks and concepts you can find online at uh, Feverbee, at Community Roundtable, at CMX Hub, and other platforms that are out there as well. Excellent. Okay. And CMX Hub, you say. Okay. And so in terms of proving the ROI from a community, that must be relatively tricky. And I, I suspect there are a few naysayers and deniers there. Judging by the shaking of your yeah. head, I'd say yes. <laughs> oh, man, you have no idea. Like, <laughs> ROI and community is one of those topics where you can ask five people and get five completely different responses. And I think the vague question itself is a loaded question. 
Because when you think about ROI or what, or what return on investment is, it's a percentage, right? It's an efficiency ratio that essentially tells you what kind of percentage return you get for every dollar or every pound or every euro that you pull into a project, what you can expect to get back. And the reason that people calculate the ROI at its purest form is to be able to compare it to everything else the organization is doing and to figure out where best to invest money to get the best return. And the problem with ROI is that it's not always suited to capturing some of the value that a community offers. So if, for example, you have a community and you notice in the community a bunch of members complaining about an issue and you can resolve the issue really, really fast, and that means it doesn't blow up into a major PR disaster, you don't use a lot of clients, it's very hard to prove that in a dollar value, and a pound value. It's very hard to assess that. It's very hard to prove in the ROI um, what the value is of having a group of members who are developing and helping you build a whole ecosystem of resellers, developers, partners, or advocating to bring other people in, in your behalf. You can do it, but it's really hard to prove and it's very hard to define. The experiments just become really difficult. But then there are parts that are easier to measure. So if a community is helping you reduce the volume of support calls you're getting, because people are asking questions in the Apple community and Apple are answering them or having other members answer them there instead of having to um, hire an army of, of support staff, then that is a lot easier to prove. Uh, retention, whether people who visit your community stick around longer as customers as a result, that's generally easier to prove. But I think better than think about the ROI is to think about the impact of community. There's lots of things that an organization does that they never measure the return on investment of. A lot of PR campaigns, for example, they don't really know what the return on investment is. Um, when they put out a, you know, when they, when they develop a uh, website or they upgrade their website, organizations don't tend to measure the return on investment of that. There's a divide. And I think more and more we're looking at the impacts of what a community can do in different areas. Because we know a community can be a fantastic place to scale your support efforts. We know a community can be a tremendous place to be an early warning system of future disasters. It can be a tremendous place to test PR campaigns or products and get feedback in a low-risk area before having to do anything else. It's a great place to set a challenge for your members and ask them to come up with ideas that can help solve some of the toughest challenges that you have. Um, it's a fantastic testbed for all these kind, kind of things. And so the ROI community... Sure, I think you need to prove what the impact is. I think you need to know what you're measuring, and there's a bunch of different things to do that. If you go to feverbeat.com slash ROI, you can find a whole resource I created on this a few years ago. Um, but fundamentally, I would look at who is the community within you or your org within you? Um, is it you the community is going to help or people within your organization? And how specifically will it help them? Because we've had situations where um, like the sales team wanted more testimonials and case studies for the presentations that they were creating. And the community became, became an amazing place to provide exactly those resources. And as a result, they're getting more clients and more successful conversions. So there's so many different ways a community can have an impact. So I'd, I think the challenge is being really specific in what the impact of the community is meant to be, and then measuring if you're achieving that impact. And maybe this efficiency ratio isn't the right ratio for measuring the success of a community. Again, very interesting. And I, I, I get how difficult that is. I think one of the most important aspects of community that I'm seeing is that your customers are always talking behind your back. They're just not necessarily saying what you want them to. And if you are not part of that conversation 
and you're not listening. And I, I look at phenomenal businesses like Authentics, where they listen to, uh, I think it was something like 10 billion conversations a year on behalf of their clients. <laughs> wow. And yeah. um, they're using AI to take the raw, unfiltered conversation and feedback, both positive and negative. I look at the research that Salesforce has done. Salesforce, I interviewed Erica Cool last week for the podcast as well. And she's yeah, the, fan. She's fan, just fan, just fantastic. Wow. Uh, what she did at Salesforce is incredible. Yeah, just breathtaking. You look at the resistance that she faced for five years. Uh, and then all of a sudden, they realized just how much impact it was having on sales, on loyalty, on retention, on utilization, on uptake, or you know, all that kind of stuff. And what seems to be really missing in a lot of marketing is relevance and speed when it comes to product development. So you touched on you know, listening to people who are frustrated. Well, Salesforce's latest research that came out in December from Karen Mangia and Matthew Sweezy identifies that if you're listening to your unhappy customers, you have a 600% faster product development cycle. Now, who wouldn't want that kind of competitive advantage? But I think one of the problems that community builders face is that for marketing and for compliance and for old school uh, leadership, the lack of control is terrifying. So how do you allay those fears and concerns? Or is it even possible or worth it? I think there's a good way and bad way of going about this. The bad way is to try and tell people those concerns aren't valid and the risks that they're identifying aren't going to happen. Because the idea that an upset customer isn't going to use your community to make a complaint is ridiculous. Of course they're going to. If you, I mean, if you fire some employees, they're going to be angry. And the community is a natural place at times to express their anger, reveal secrets, all those kind of things. So I think the worst thing to do is to pretend that these risks um, aren't valid, they aren't going to happen, and there's a reason why organizations want control. I think the better approach is to highlight what the benefits are of engaging with those risks. So when people do complain in the community, you have an opportunity to respond to it, to engage with it, and to show everyone that you care about, even the people that dislike you at the moment. Yeah, you give voice to people whose opinions and um, our arguments might be very, very valid. So I think these risks are useful tools to educate the company in what's working and what's not working. They're going to go public anyway. I mean, last night on the news, there was uh, an e-florist, I think they were, and they did a poor job for a few of their customers. And it was all over Twitter, all over Facebook, and it ended up on the local news. The damage to their brand, I don't know how long or how bad that will be, but it's going to be remembered for at least a, a period. At least within a community, it's probably contained. But if they're going on to the Twitter sphere and Facebook, that's very, very public. So there must be some real value in having it within you know, a group of friends. It's a more authentic experience. I remember um, around a year, a year ago, I was trying to buy some camping gear and they, I visited the community of two of the biggest manufacturers of this gear. And in one community, um, it was only positive posts, only positive reviews, only positive posts. And another one, they had a mixture of positive and negative as well. 
And I wrote to the community manager, um, who is a friend of a friend, and asked why there were only positive posts. The person told me that when there's a negative post, they reach out to the person, they try to address the issue, and then they remove the post. And you can kind of see how that makes sense to them. You can kind of see we don't want you know, criticism in our community. We'd rather address the issue and then remove the post. But the problem is, if there's only positive posts in a community, it just feels fake. You don't trust any of the positivity about the negativity as well. And so for me, you have a far more authentic experience when there are positive and negative reviews within a community. When people do tell you what products they like and what products they don't like, when they do give you that feedback. And I think a key part of having a community is understanding the benefit of that. Like Amazon did when they allowed people to leave reviews on their website. At the time, that was a groundbreaking thing to do because you could be trying to sell something that has negative reviews. What it does is that it means that you're more trusted. It means that you have more trust, you're going to generate more sales as a result of that. So when you give up control, what you get is a lot more engagement. And what you get from that engagement is honest uh, feedback and insights. You get more revenue, you get more trust, you get an opportunity to engage with your audience. And I think that's a trade-off worth happening. So all of the things that people are worried about are probably going to happen, but it's not as big a deal as what people think it is. And each one of those negative things has an amazing opportunity if you can engage with it in exactly the right way. Well, again, that's really interesting. My pal Todd Capone talks about this in the Transparency Sale, his book. And he says that reviews around 4.2 out of 5 have a great deal or carry a great deal more of a sense of authenticity than just five stars. I've been trying to encourage people to give me slightly lower reviews on the podcast. So, <laughs> but so far, not yet. I'm sure someone will just ask a uh, generosity. And I'm happy to, to, to do it after this, if you want. Maybe. Maybe a one star review and bring it down a bit. But it's really interesting that what we're looking for, and it, he, he talks about how people look for the negative reviews. 80% of people will look at the negative reviews first and get a sense of those. You know, m- most people won't buy anything below three stars anyway. But if it's three and a half, four, you'll look at the negative reviews and then you'll make an assessment. Is it worth then looking at the positive reviews? And are you going to risk it? Because the hassle of returns and whatever. Um, or just being ripped off. That's really interesting. And um, you also uh, talk about the different platforms. Certainly when I've um, been investigating this, it's overwhelming. Um, you know, where the hell do you start? <laughs> I would start with an understanding of the audience. Again, everything for me always comes back to understanding the audience as deeply as possible. Exactly. What's the technology yeah. they know, what they're comfortable with building out what these use cases of the community are, what's going to make the community unique. I think the common mistake is to fall in love with with a platform. Usually, Usually an organization will see an existing online community that they like, and then they try to have the same platform as what they're using without realizing that's probably not the best fit for the audience that they're trying to attract. So beginning with the audience, understanding their use cases and needs, And then from that, coming up with what kinds of technology requirements you're likely to have. So for sure, you can use a um, LinkedIn group. You can use Facebook groups if that's what your budget allows. Or you can go with some of the low-cost platforms like Circle, Mighty Networks, uh, Tribe. There's some low-cost platforms that allow you just to plug and play, set up a community, drag a few things around and get up and running. And those are fine platforms. Um, 
But it should always be begin with who is your audience and what do they need? And then you have to combine that with what is your budget as well. I find very often that an organization doesn't have a budget in mind because they have no idea what a community platform should cost, which means you have an opportunity to set the expectations. But there's also a danger that certain vendors will set those expectations first, and that can be hazardous for many organizations. So really, I begin with the unique unique use cases, developing a good idea of what the strategy is, what's going to make your community unique within this field. Never trying to compete with an existing community that's got a big head start without doing something completely unique or different, being more exclusive or less exclusive or having a particular focus or unique feature, and then going forward from there. Don't select the platform before deciding what the strategy is and knowing who the audience are. I've had mixed advice on whether to go for a paid or unpaid community membership. And you know, the, somewhere in between is have different levels of membership. Now, for, certainly for the community I'm trying to build, my, it's not about making money. But I also don't necessarily want to be funding the whole thing myself if we're building a global community. And the, the objective is to capture the best practices and share those lessons for free yeah. forever. That's the intent. So um, you know, platforms like Miro or Mural are very good for capturing these ideas and collecting these assets. So if you're using multiple platforms, is that a problem or is that just a matter of better organization and curation? No, I think you can stitch together a really world-class community experience by using platforms that are free or very much um, inexpensive. You know, you can use Medium for blogs, Slack for live discussions, Muriel um, for live collaboration and capturing thoughts and ideas. You can use um, Zoom for meetings. I mean, you can stitch together like a pretty interesting community platform. I do think you need some sort of central place that connects all these things and shows members what's new, what's happening within the community. Even MailChimp, you can send out a newsletter once a week with that. So it's very easy to start a community experience without having a huge, without having to invest a huge amount of money. I am a little bit more skeptical than what I used to be about the free platforms like Facebook groups and LinkedIn. And I think the problem with that is, um, ironically, the lack of control. So I know people who've had groups, you know, 13,000 members in a Facebook group, I think. And then the group was suddenly removed because there were a number of complaints that had been made. But they had no warning of that. They had no chance to remove whatever the issues were. They weren't even told what the issues were. The group is just dead and gone. And I think there's a danger of that happening when you aren't paying for the product. I don't want to use the cliches about not paying for products and all that. But I think there's a danger of that, is that you're not the, pri- the priority. There are other priorities in, in, um, uh, to bear in mind here. The only reason to use a platform like LinkedIn and Facebook is that you benefit from the natural effects that people are more likely to find it or to use those platforms every day, especially with, with Facebook groups. They might get automatically recommended to join those groups. So there's a natural um, benefit of that. But I think more and more, it's probably not worth the cost. Maybe to just get a community off the ground, you might begin there. But I wouldn't stay there for too long. I think at some point, you should move to a um, paid platform experience. So the free platforms are a catalyst and the entry-level drug, if you like, and then move to a paid platform, low cost, but then you're not going to get deplatformed. 
Yeah, they're a very good way of testing your idea to check that your community concept is valid, that people want to join and want to participate. You can test your idea quite easily without having to invest much money. So I think they work very well in that capacity. Excellent. Okay. Now, you talked about the newsletter. Should the newsletter can be um, filled with uh, community-generated content? I think at the beginning, it's probably going to be you that's creating a lot of the activity and the discussion, so you're going to have to link to your own stuff. What I wouldn't try and do is create an industry newsletter. You don't want to be competing with what's out there at the moment. You don't want to have a newsletter filled with information that people can get elsewhere. So I think over time, you want members to be submitting contributions for the newsletter or looking through what's happening in the community and then picking out the highlights that people should pay attention to. And you can build quite a big big following within any sector just by curating the best of list of any given week or any given month. And I know people that have built very successful online communities just by following that approach. Excellent. Okay, that's good advice. Okay, so what are the three questions people should ask but don't? (laughs) I think people don't spend a lot of time asking, how do we find out what members want and desire? Very often when people go wrong, it's because they work with assumptions that aren't validated by data. So if I were to look at, if I were to build a community for community professionals today, the field I work in, I would say, okay, I, I know these, these people, I talk to them a lot. Um, this is what the community should be about, who it should be for. When in reality, I must speak to maybe a tiny fraction, a tiny percentage of the entire space. So I would end up just building a community for my friends, the people that I know best, the people that I associate with best. So an echo and I think, yeah, and I think that happens time and time again. Whereas a better approach would be to get as much data from the entire scene, get interviews with people from different areas, survey results if I can, and try and put in as much diverse experience as possible and then build a community that way. And I don't think there's enough discussion. I mean, there's so much advice that begins with... Um, Find out what your members want and then do that. But actually, like the best advice would be to tell you, how do you find out what members want? What are the right questions to ask? What are the right um, survey um, tech techniques to use? How do you build those personas? Those are the kind of questions that I think have most value and not enough people are trying to answer those questions. So for me, once you know the kind of question to ask, like, you know, where are you engaging with at the moment? What are you... What are you measured by? What are the goals that matter to you? What challenges are you having on your day-to-day life? Not your big high-level goals that you're never going to pursue, but what do you need right now today? Those kinds of questions give you great expertise that you can start building a community around. So that'd be the first one. The second one is probably around preparation. Very often a community is bolted onto what an organization is doing and and the organization thinks they don't have to change a thing. They don't have to change anything that's happening within that within the organization today. They can just add a community on top. But a community involves, to do it, right, a lot of understanding and knowledge about what works and what doesn't work. You might have to engage with your members in a more open way than you're comfortable with doing at the moment. You might have to give your members more time. You might have to give your top members um, exclusive access and feedback and be able to talk to your engineering team. So there's a lot of work that has to be done under the surface to make a community work. It's a lot easier, I think, to design an organization for a community to be successful than to try and fit a community to the way an organization already works. We saw this with the advent of online grocery shopping. Tesco.com was a sort of Frankenstein bolt-on, whereas Mm -hmm. Ocado 
was a made in the internet type of service. And uh, when you look at the reviews around things like substitutions or mm. the freshness of produce from both platforms, it, it's clear that Ocado had the customer, the, the online customer in mind first, whereas Tesco started out thinking about a footfall customer now shopping online. And yeah. if your bread only has two days' life in it rather than a week, then that becomes very frustrating because it starts to taint the experience. So I think one of the other things you need to do is really think as the customer or think as a community member. And without doing the research, without having real-world conversations with people, you are going to fall foul of your own limiting beliefs and assumptions. So definitely pay heed to what Richard's saying here. Okay, sorry, go, please go on. I think just to elaborate on that point a little bit, you see it a lot in communities that have become companies instead of companies that are trying to add, add a community. You can see a lot of organizations like um, Stack Overflow and um, Reddit and others who began as a community and then became a business. And you see how well designed they are for their community. You see how they can add all sorts of product lines and interesting ideas as a result of having that community first. The last thing I'd add is just how do I get members to make their best contributions? I think often there's this engagement trap that organizations fall into where they think success is having as much engagement as possible. And they realize the way to get as much engagement as possible is to lower the bar to engagement. If you make it easier and easier for people to engage, then uh, more people will engage. The problem with that is that when you change, when you're not asking for a comment, but you're just asking for a like, um, when you're not asking for um, a meaningful idea, but you're asking for a vote, you're not getting meaningful contributions at all. And you're just lowering the bar and none of that engagement actually matters. And I think the challenge is how do you motivate and persuade members to make their best contributions? How do you develop a system where every single person feels like they can make a unique, useful contribution? Because I think that's the critical part that makes a community thrive. You need a small group of members, and often it's just 1% of the total audience, who feel like they are making unique, useful contributions based upon the expertise and knowledge and, and all the resources that they have acquired. And this goes back to that A, that ABCD approach, looking at the resources that people can contribute and then designing ways they can contribute effectively. And if you get that right, you have a community that has a very high level of quality in that, in that community instead of just a lot of engagement that doesn't mean um, much at all. That's really interesting. So can you cite some personal examples of how you've been able to drive that kind of unique, important, useful contribution? Yeah, the easiest thing to do um, is when someone joins a community at the very micro level is to research them a little. If I find their LinkedIn profiles, I look at what their background is, I can start to see, okay, this person has experience in this sector, in this field. I might reach out to them and say, hey, um, we, if you have any questions or we have any questions on this topic, can I reach out to you to answer them? And then automatically they feel like, oh, I can give advice. And people absolutely love being asked for their advice. It's what me, who doesn't want to feel like an expert that can give advice to people in almost any situation? So then they feel uniquely, uniquely valued within that group. We've tried to I'm working with uh, what, two, like two, two clients now that are going through this exact process. 
of looking who, at who members are, reaching out to them, understanding what their unique backgrounds are, what unique experience they have, and then saying, hey, do you want your own column within this community? Do you want to be, have a ask me any, anything and, or an RC expert within this community? Do you want to be responsible for collecting and curating the best expertise in the field within this community? So everyone has an opportunity based upon the skills and knowledge and the resources they've acquired to make a unique, useful contribution uh, to that community. That's brilliant advice. That's been worth the price of admission. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thanks. So when things go wrong, how important is it to have good moderators? I think it's always important to have good moderators, especially now, because I think we've seen over the last couple of years how important or what happens when you don't have good moderators or no, mo no moderation at all. And I think there's been communities in the past that have tried to be like the last bastion of free speech on the web. Yeah. And if you want to be that thing, you end up attracting the speech of people that have been kicked off every other platform so far. <laughs> and it's not a desirable place to be. And I think everyone building a community now has to decide what level of moderation they're comfortable with. And there's no easy answer to that. I mean, sure, you, you should remove all of the racism, the hatred, discrimination, those kind of things have no place in any community anyway. But then you have questions such as fake news. I mean, ideally, yes, you want to remove information that isn't true from your community. But practically, are you the person that gets to decide what is and isn't true? Do you have the expertise to do that? Do you have the background or the credentials to do that? Are you willing to engage in all those fights and all those battles? And the bigger philosophical discussion is what is truth? You know, like how two people could look at the same facts and have different truths. So you end up getting into a situation that is quite difficult. So I think at the baseline, you need moderation to remove stuff that is intentionally offensive, intentionally hateful, and unintentionally could lead people to have bad outcomes, you know, like anti-vaxxers and all those, all those crowds. But then you've got to wade into the weeds of figuring out, do we accept things that might not be true, as long as there's no, it, no Ill, Ill intent? Or are we willing to invest significantly in the motivation costs that it has that we you know, need to invest in to decide what's true? And you see, even, even Facebook today is wrestling with this, with their Supreme Court they've just created, where you can appeal and decide what is and isn't truth and what is or isn't offensive. Um, yeah, so there's no fixed answers here. I think a lot of these rules are going to be decided by brand guidelines, um, what the brand is comfortable with. Um, but I would say for every rule you create, you have to have the investment to enforce it and you have to be able to enforce it in a consistent way. And I think moderation as well is becoming a battle of consistency versus flexibility. So for example, you can hire mod moderators um, to use their subjective opinions and so people don't remove posts that, you know, probably shouldn't should be removed. So to use some example, you know, um, uh, nudity, you know, should be banned from most online communities. But then you have artwork that features nudity. Should that be removed? Is that offensive? Is like Michelangelo's statue or whatever, or David or whatever it is, like, should that be removed? Because it is nudity there. So if a, mo a moderator exercising their subjective judgment will say, no, that's fine. I mean, it's art. We all appreciate it's art. That's fine. But then if you are abided by strict rules, if someone, if there's if someone else is posing exact in that exact pose and it's a real life person, that's probably something you might want to remove. And so you end up into the weeds of this really difficult situation. 
I recommend actually, um, if people want to research um, a comedian, I've forgotten her name, but a moderation debate called Kill All Men. If you look up that, if your audience looks that up, they're going to find exactly how difficult moderation can be and how people can have very different opinions of the same debate. Um, so if you look that up, I think it's one of the Facebook uh, Supreme Court decisions they have to make. Um, you'll see just how complex and challenging um, moderation can be and is likely to be. Is that Emily McCune? I think so, yeah. Um, the, it was is a that comedian Emily that McCune? made... I'm not sure the name, I can't remember the name, um, but it was, it was a comedian that made a um, Facebook post saying, kill all men. It was like a joke. You know, her, it's like an image of her young. Um, and it was a joke, you know, it was like against the trend. It was punching up. And some people thought that should be removed and some people thought it shouldn't. But it goes to the heart because should jokes be removed? And if they shouldn't, who gets to decide what, what's funny? You know, because you can have humour that is very offensive as well. So it's an interesting debate to have. It is. Excellent. Okay, so what what are the qualities that make a good moderator? (laughs) I can't claim to be an expert in moderation. I think there's people that do moderation at a more advanced level than what I do because moderation tends to split, as I said, into two fields. There's the people who are basically being paid to look at posts for a few seconds and decide whether it should be accepted or not. And then there's a subjective, more community management role where you're looking at the broader context and then deciding um, whether a post should be allowed to um, remain or or not. I would say there's a difference between being a moderator and being a manager of that community. A moderator is basically about keeping the train on on the tracks and a community manager is about getting the train to that destination where it needs to go. And that involves a completely different set of skills, such as having empathy and compassion for members, being able to build relationships with the top people to motivate them to want to keep participating, being able to curate the best expertise within a community. And I think that's a slightly different set of skills than just a pure moderation role that we're seeing um, in other organizations or situations uh, today. So in terms of developing the rules, Obviously, there's got to be a fine line drawn between having too few and too many. Descent into anarchy versus um, too much control and constraint. But certainly constraints I've found over the years, uh, some constraint fuels creativity and can significantly help refine your message, refine your thinking. So... What's your advice in terms of developing the rules right at the outset and knowing that they will evolve over time? I think there's um, three layers to this. There's the first, which we've discussed, you know, no hatred, no intentionally offensive posts. People do that, can be removed, and you don't have to worry too much about them again other than removing them when they return. Then you have the gray area decisions such as, you know, what usernames do you allow? Do you allow people to have um, images in their community, um, you know, as the avatars or their profile photos and what are the rules concerning them? You know, would you be happy with an image that was, you know, Trump MAGA fan 2024? You know, are you happy with those kinds of um, those contributions? Um, So those gray area decisions are what you have to make as well. But I think the more interesting ones for me is 
what are the cultural rules that you can implement that's going to make your community completely unique? So if you look at Stack Overflow, for example, an amazing community for developers, and they did something completely different uh, from any other community that existed before them, which is whereas a lot of communities want a lot of responses to discussions, they want those those free-flowing discussions, they want all the opinions, Stack Overflow doesn't. They just want one response to every post, which is the right response, the right answer. That's all they want. And so they pretty much banned opinions from that site and they've replaced it with facts and evidence and uh, walkthrough guides and those kind of things. And it creates a completely different kind of experience. Um, There's pros and cons of it, but it's worked tremendously well for them. There's this great book by uh, Priya Parker called The Art of 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 the Gathering. And she basically describes how she brings audiences together and then creates unique rules that shakes them out of their normal routines and creates a really tremendous experience. And we can do that online as well. She describes um, this amazing TED talk as well, how she created a gathering of mums and she created like a couple of rules. One is they weren't allowed to talk about their kids. And instantly it creates a kind of different dynamic. You know, she talks about another another gathering where people aren't allowed to talk about what they do for work. She talks about having rules where the first person who check who uh, checks their phone has to pay the bill. And instantly you start seeing how when you shake people out of their normal routines and their comfort zones, you can create this truly unique and powerful community experience. And I feel online we don't do this enough. I think online, when we start changing those normal routines and those rules that people are used to, we can create communities that are amazing. Or we can create communities that are indispensable if we ban opinions or we only allow certain people with a certain level of expertise to participate, or we create rules where people have to provide an opinion and back it up with a fact or whatever those unique rules are, I think it creates this incredible opportunity um, to create these community experiences that are unique. And I think that's a part of the motivation process as well. Not just removing the bad stuff, but defining these cultural rules that are going to make the community completely unique. And I think once you start looking at those rules between the signal and the noise, between having a community where everyone can express their opinions honestly and openly and being accepted for it, then at the other extreme, just allowing facts and the best um, response to each contribution, you're creating a community experience that's unique and different from anything out there. So I think going to the extremes in these kinds of rules, I think that's a really interesting and a really exciting part of the community development process. And then looking at the role of the founders or the founding members, how important is it that they are opinionated? They come with passion. Um, That's an appropriate use of the phraseology, but... (laughs) I think everyone is opinionated, right? But some people are held back in their opinions because of their background, because of the environment. And so a lot of part, so I don't really think it's opinionated that matters. I think it's about where you've got people that are passionate about the topic, like you described, I think passion for the topic really helps and really matters. Um, but it also, it's also quite contextual by the type of community. Like a lot of um, brand communities are customer support communities. With founding members, it helps, but it is not the critical thing because there's a flood of people that are going to use a community often, regardless of... Um, of whether you have found founder members or want or not, people have questions and they want answers. For a community based around passion or a topic that people are interested in, um, it's not around just Q&A and support. Then I think having the right founder members is important, people that want to 
create something new, unique, and different. And this isn't going to be the key influencers within any field that are busy building their influence elsewhere. It's going to be people that have passion and commitment, people that are interested and excited by the idea, people that often have a unique character type as well. So I think, yes, they need to have passions, but you need to play that facilitating role in making sure they feel comfortable sharing what their opinions are, making sure they can bring their backgrounds and experiences to help co-develop and co-create that community, defining the rules, the cultural rules, deciding what platform to use, all those kinds of things. I think all that has to come from the founding members of your community. Okay. Have you ever been blindsided when you've been building communities? (laughs) So many times. Um, There's so many times I've been caught out by things I didn't expect. Trying to think of some great examples here. Um, On the legal side especially, like I remember one member um, who suggested we had this place in the community for pro- for product I- I- um, ideas, and one of these ideas from from the community became um, an important feature of the product of a client. And I worked with them to make sure that the member was mentioned on stage at their big annual event that they suggested this idea, and it sounded like it's such a great win for the community. You know, they voted on it, they saw it implemented. It's a massive win. The member in the audience suddenly realized that they could pursue royalty claims for this idea and then sued the company. It was settled uh, out of court and then the ideation area was taken down. Yeah, you get things like that. I'm always blindsided often by the opportunism of members. Um, sometimes just members in the gaming space, especially like members, yeah, are amazing. I remember once, like one of the first video gaming communities I did, I think I was around 15 year, year, years old. And we wanted to do this um, secret Santa thing where you could put your name in, it would match you with someone else. And then you could buy them a gift and it'd have like the address to send, to send it to. This is before the privacy and security concerns yeah. that we had today. And it sounded like a really good idea. One of the members of the community vol- volunteered to create the the pro, the pro, the pro program that would do this. And it seemed to work fine. Everyone put their names in who wanted to participate. Um, everyone got a name, a name back. Um, and then they all bought gifts for that person. What this creator had done had, had been to design a system that would send his name out as the secret center for every single person. Like his yeah. name went out to thousands of individuals. It was genius. And then we're thinking like, this is clearly like, I'm pretty sure it's fraud. I'm pretty sure it's a crime. We're also 15 and don't know what we're doing. So, I mean, <laughs> if you give members a chance, like, yeah, I don't know. I'm always, I'm always blown away by the creativity. I mean, if, you're, if your site can be hacked, members will likely hack the site at some point. I think the things to be aware of, on a more serious note, is if you put yourself out there as the manager of that community, as the leader of that community, when people get angry, they will take it personal against you. Even if you're just following the rules, they will take it personally against you. So I know people in the community space, women especially, who are being harassed on other sites, other platforms, people trying to add them, people trying to find their addresses, finding their addresses, sending them Christmas gifts. I mean, it, it can get disturbing at that level. So I think if I'm building a community today, I'd be cautious um, of putting my name, my address, my phone number, my profile photos, anything out there at all. I'd be a lot more cautious about that than what I used to be. Now, that's really interesting because I've never used uh, a pseudonym except on Twitter. 
and I did that because I like the whole concept of the Inquisitor. But it, it, it raises the question, in my mind at least, if people are not stepping forward, then are they really playing their part in a, a movement? And again, I suspect that's just my limiting belief. So do people give their real names? Do, do they use an avatar or a pseudonym? That, that's an interesting question. So based on the legal ramifications, what I'm concluding from what you're saying is give people the option um, and then you're covered. I think it depends a lot upon the situation. Like one of my clients is building a community in the pharmaceutical space. And there it's a private online community. People want to know who everyone is because your credentials matter a huge amount on the quality of advice you're giving. So the real name there is fine. I don't think you're going to have any issue with that. If I'm building a community in the video gaming space now, a pseudonym would probably be the best approach. Um, a pseudonym that isn't connected to any other account that you've created or an, attached to an email address, not connected on I mean, not connected to anything else you have, using Proton Mail or something, I would probably be a lot more concerned about my privacy and security in those spaces. So I think it's contextual. Legally, I don't think there's many ramifications either way. I think you've got to be very careful if you're allowing a platform that's anonymous um, and you have no idea of finding out who those members are because they can be sharing and discussing all sorts of things. I think legal aspects matter more elsewhere but it's very contextual based upon the the, um, situation. So in the context of the community that we're building, one of my concerns is that companies or individuals will be named and shamed. And that's, uh, again, counter to the being for something rather than against. So presumably that's where we have to have rules and moderation to make sure that as a community owner, I guess, because someone undoubtedly will be held liable. You're not then putting yourself in uh, the legal crosshairs. I mean, there's a certain degree of protection that you get. Um, pretty much all countries in the world, or not pretty much, but a large number of con- of countries in the world have um, certain levels of um, protection for people that host an online community for the discussions that, or the posts that members make within that community, you know? Um, we've got the Communications Decency Act, um, Section um, 230 in, uh, in, the, in the USA and the UK. I think we were covered by the um, European laws. I, I'm not sure if we are at the moment anymore, actually. Um, I need to look that up. But there's a certain degree of protection that you're afforded. That said, um, there are exceptions to that, and there's certainly platforms like um, Mum, like like Mumsnet in the UK that have been sued numerous times in the past for criticism people made in the community. I think generally you just need rules. Like if I was to design a rule, I'd I'd say criticize what people do, but not who they are. Like I think it's okay to say I don't like that this person did X. I don't think it's. I think you get into a worse area when you're saying. This person is a bad person. I think that's when you I get criticize the behavior, really not add bad value. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, okay. I think it's easier just to, to to criticize fairly what people have done. Okay, excellent, Richard. We've come to the top of the hour. Tell me this: What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? <laughs> I don't know. Um, for me, running a consultancy is a bit different because there's so many areas that a community can go, and I think the challenge for everyone in the community space or in managing communities on a professional level 
is whether to say as a generous community professional that can work for numerous organizations or to start specializing in a particular field, such as customer support communities, such as knowledge management communities, such as um, retention or marketing-based um, online communities. And so for me, the challenge is what comes next? You know, Do you want to go more specialized and, and the trade-offs that are associated with that? Or do you want to become more, more, gen, more generalized and look at, hey, maybe I want to be more than just the community person, look at the broader customer support experience or the broader marketing experience. So for me, the challenge is, I think I'm in a very um, great place right now, but it's where to go next. I think that's the question. What, that what do you want your business to give you in life? <laughs> Satisfaction. For a long time, it was definitely financial gain but i think at the moment i'm in a place where i'm comfortable with where i'm at so for me i feel a little bit like the community space right now is is very hot so i get companies reaching out at least every other day wanting help with their communities and it becomes a lot like an actor reading scripts i guess you try and pick up the projects that are the right mix of you know financially rewarding for sure but what gives you deep satisfaction? What helps you build um, your craft? What helps you learn new skills? And yeah, so for me, it's I want satisfaction. I want joy. I want to feel like I've accomplished something with each project that I take on. So uh, that's what I'm looking for. Um, what I'm not, yeah. Are you are you trying to build a business or are you trying to build a practice? A practice. I spent many years trying to build a business, and I realized. Building a consultancy, I think I got up to 10 employees at one point, and it just wasn't fun. I admire the people that do it. I think they do fantastic work. I just found I was managing a team instead of helping people manage a community. I wasn't really doing the work that I wanted to be doing anymore. And so I just find far more joy in working with a client because a community is often like a puzzle. And you have to solve that puzzle and it's exciting to do it. And it's, yeah, I enjoy doing that level of work. There's real satisfaction in that work. Very interesting. Okay. Have you got any recommendations in terms of reading, watching, listening uh, to content that is really strong in the area of community? Ah, oh, there's so many. If you don't mind me pl plugging my own work, um, um, at the beginning of May, I'll have a new book that's coming out called Build Your Communities. Um, so please feel free, if you like the advice here, to get that. Elsewhere, I think... Um, Pre-order page on that? Uh, yeah, I can send through a link for yeah, that. Yeah, send, send me the link. Um, and I'll add it to the blurb. Elsewhere, I would look at um, David Spinks, uh, The Business of Belonging, um, Carrie and Melissa Jones, Building Brand Communities. John O'Bacon, um, I've forgotten the name of his, of his last book, but if you look at the books he's done, they're all pretty great. On Twitter, you've got Erica Cool, uh, Brian Oblinger, who do fantastic work, Patrick O'Keefe as well. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people doing really fantastic work in the community space, and obviously um, all the websites and blogs around that. There's so much going on right now. It's quite an exciting time to be building Fabulous. a community. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. How can people get hold of you? Sure, richard at feverbee.com or at Rich Millington on Twitter is fine. I'm open to have any questions or discussions, anything that can help um, the audience you have. Okay, so one final cheeky question. Uh, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back to when you started, age 23. 
what one choice bit of advice would you give the idiot Richard back then that you know he would have probably ignored but would have been valuable? 35 now? This would have been 12 years ago then, right? 2009, yeah. I think. Oh, that's easy. I would look myself right in the eye and say, Richard, buy as much Bitcoin as possible. <laughs> because that would have been amazing, wouldn't it? Like, honestly, if, if, it, if it's not a community-related topic, I would tell myself to stop trying to impress other people so much. I think you get to an age like mid-30s where you suddenly realize, oh, I've been the Northern star I've had is been trying to impress people in a certain way and it permeates through everything that you do. And I think it comes from school, it comes from how you were raised, or it comes from, you know, some other, I don't know, maybe insecurity. And I think I spent a lot of time, you know, trying to grow a big consultancy practice, trying to become like the biggest name in my space in some field. And, and instead of just trying to really figure out what my goals were, really trying to figure out what gave me internal satisfaction and then aligning everything else to match. And I think that took a long time to get to that place. So as cliche as it is, like just really listening to what your heart and your mind are telling you, not trying to impress other people by being what you think that they want, really understanding who you are and following the goals that matter to you, following what gives you joy and happiness each day and not trying to put off every single excitement, you know, in, in the meantime, trying to pursue a goal that doesn't matter for you. Um, I think Fantastic advice. And again, it's a very common theme. A lot of us realize that worrying about what other people think over which you have zero control is a thankless and pointless errand. I think but- also there's, there's a space, I think, with Twitter and blogging where everyone's sharing their successes and everyone's sharing that they got funded and everyone's sharing, you know, oh, I achieved this thing. And I think there's a natural thing to think, oh, I have to be that too. Um, instead of realizing that a lot of these people are, to be honest, very insecure. Yeah, I think there's a different way of like just thinking about that. And I think once you change that, it changes everything. I think that's fair. You know, when people are seeking approval, that's uh, indicative of something deeper. Excellent. Mm. Uh, Richard Mellington, thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on on the podcast as well. I appreciate it so much. It's my absolute pleasure. And I've learned so much. (laughs) Thank you. So... If you're the owner or CEO of a tech company and you're in the 10 to 50 million mark and you want to grow your business, achieve sustainable, real hyper growth, not built on rocky foundations, and you want to develop a highly engaged team of very productive, highly engaged employees across marketing, sales, and customer success, and you want clients who stick with you year after year, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. If you're interested in the Sales of Force for Good mission, then please get in touch. Uh, You can check out posts that I've uh, done on LinkedIn and Facebook with the hashtag SAFFG or hashtag Sales of Force for Good. And if you'd like to be a volunteer, then do get in touch. So if you found today's conversation useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And you can get hold of me at marcus at laughs-last.com or DM me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe, happy selling, and happy community building. Bye-bye.